I go about it is putting out there what I want to do and what I accomplish. Like if I tell more people about that, the likelihood they think of someone in their mind that may be a fit is higher. Right. And I talk to entrepreneurs all the time. They're like, yeah, but someone might steal my idea. I don't want to talk about it. I'm like, screw all of that. Like tell everyone and everyone, like, here's what I'm doing. Right. And yeah, you will find competitors, but they didn't become competitors because of you telling them they were out there anyway. We're on a mission. We're going to find and uncover the smartest, most successful entrepreneurs on the planet. Explore their highs, their lows, and how they ultimately mastered the game. I'm Martin Cook, and I'm excited to welcome you to the Smarter Destiny podcast. I'm grateful for you and your time. Now let's level up together. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another Smarter Destiny podcast, where this time we have my friend David Hauser on the show. David is an absolute legend, and my mastermind and buddies there had the chance to hang out with him in sunny Mexico just a couple of weeks ago. David is the founder of Repeat Capital, he, which, is, which is a huge firm in its own right, but in terms of history, he has bootstrapped the company Grasshopper, to 30 million in annual recurring revenue and then sold it to Citrix for 175 mil, which would be enough for most people. But also, he built another company called Chargeify and he sold it not once, but twice, which is a fun story, which hopefully we'll get into. And then on the side, you know, as if that's not keeping him busy, he's made over a hundred angel investments and most recently purchased the incredible brand called Perfect Keto. And these brands are housed under Airbag Ventures, airbag.com, a cool domain. I highly recommend you check it out. Apart from that, David is able to go toe to toe with a bunch of work hard play hard entrepreneurs and is a great guy to hang out with and a lot of fun in any situation so i'm beyond excited to have david on the show today so without further ado david how's it going hey martin thanks for having me here absolutely so whereabouts in the world are you right now david i'm in las vegas this is my uh 10th year here um i grew up in new york uh spent 10 years in massachusetts and boston growing grasshopper, but now Vegas. And I just love it. Not, I don't live on the strip. So uh, I, I don't gamble. I don't drink. Um, so not typical Vegas, but that's right. Absolutely. I mean, there, yeah, there's other parts of Vegas and sometimes people forget that actually it's quite a big place. That's not the strip, right. Or a casino. Yeah. So uh, amazing. Well, certainly um, the heat and uh, dry, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, during summer, you get a few hundred and fifteen, hundred and twenty days. But I mean, honestly, you're some air conditioning during the day. It cools down at night. It's not all that bad. Um, and the rest of the year is, is great. Beautiful. OK, so the way we like to kick off these things on this show is we like to go back to a point in time, a point which serves as your origin story as an entrepreneur. Most entrepreneurs have some kind of notable moment in their history, which began to define them or at least set the road ahead for them. Do you have a similar story? And if so, could you take us back there and paint us a word picture? Yeah, I, I thought about this quite a lot. And, you know, what it really comes back to me is like, why did I want to win and, and kind of prove people wrong, right? Like, I think that's what drives a lot of the things I do, um, especially around, you know, being successful. And I think back to like, I want to say like, oh, I was selling this or doing that. No, like, what it really comes back to is when I was in, you know, middle school or whatever, um, struggled tremendously with reading and writing, right? So severe learning disability, dyslexia. Uh, I, I went to a tutor six days a week, five days a week at least, some you know, kind of up and down um, to learn how to read. I was years behind all of my peers, right? And I think I took that to heart and really decided like, one, I had to decide how I wanted to define success. Uh, and what that meant to me. And then two, I wanted to prove everyone else wrong that I could be successful, right? Because I felt like at that age, there was just a lot of, you know, he's stupid, he's not going to be able to read. And of course, like most kids get past that, right? And I was lucky enough to have the, you know, resources in school and, you know, outside of school to do so and to learn how to learn. But that is what stuck with me. Um, and then very quickly from there, I think that set me on the correct path of, well, if reading is difficult for me, computers make that easier. So I got involved in that. And like that just pushed me further and further in that direction. And it happened to be good timing with computers and such. But to me, it all goes back to that, like proving 
people wrong. Amazing. And so, um, so what roughly what I mean, roughly or exactly you, t- you, you, your choice, but how old are you? I'm I'm 39. I had to think about it for a second. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, you're at the age and I would put myself in the same bracket where you have to do a quick, quick maths to be like, and then you have a moment where you go, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> then you answer. At least that is the case, case in my case. Okay, so so thirty nine. So when you were when you were starting on computers, they're obviously a lot bigger than they are now. They would take up most of, most of the desk and not have a ton of power. But in fact, we'd have more power in our phones. But they became connected, and that opened up a, a realm of possibilities. Do you remember some of your early computer businesses or, or projects or, or or things like that? Yeah, I mean, I, there's obviously some that. Uh that probably don't want to talk about. Like I remember taking AOL CDs and using the free minutes and hacking into accounts to get more free minutes. So um, that, that's probably not the best, but we had lots of AOL CDs at the time. Um, but yeah, I can remember back to the first computer that I owned um, and not, not my parents, but like I owned, right? And it was a Dell computer. It was the only computer I wanted. It cost some ridiculous amount of money. I don't know, three, four thousand dollars. It probably wasn't very powerful. And my dad said to me, "Look, I'll get you the computer um, because you want to build websites and you want to do these different things, but you got to pay me back, right?" So he put me on a payment plan. I couldn't afford that, right? Um, he luckily could, so he gave that to me. Um, but I think it was a really interesting learning experience. Like he didn't hand me the computer. He said, "I'm going to provide the resource to you, but you have to pay it back." Right. And I think back to that a lot. I think about how I talk to my kids and, you know, what that means today. Right. And I think there's a really important lesson there about, you know, owning something yourself compared to being given something. Hmm. And the and the learnings that come from that and and the value uh, of whatever it was to you when there was a, a, a fee attached to it and and s- some work attached to it, I imagine. So that Dell computer and and Dell was a that was I think my first computer that I bought was, it was Dell as well. I saved up an entire summer to buy it. Um, side side story there. But um, do you remember some of your or one of your early things that you started doing where you're like, wow, this is this is something that happened perhaps on that Dell computer? Yeah, one of the early things that I started doing is we were building an ad exchange um, for banner ads, like way way back. Um, in you know early early days of the internet right so like crappy you know single banners right um and we built a simple program just to serve those and track them right like and it was mostly for us and over the probably about two or three years we actually built it up to a reasonable size um nothing major but like it it was a learning experience for me both from a programming perspective like i built the program but also from like a um maturity standpoint, like I had to reach out to other website owners, right? And I was some young kid. So I had to learn how to speak properly. And, you know, all of those things that go into pitching something, right? And I didn't understand at the time, that's what it was. But I was pitching website owners on, can I manage banners on your website, right? (laughs) Nice. And so, and were you also speaking to advertisers as well? Like, do you want to advertise in in the banners? Yeah, we we did the website owners first. um, And then the advertisers came, but then we also you know, ran ads from other networks too, right? So we backfilled inventory just with, you know, other network stuff that was available. That's really cool. And um, so where, where did that grow to? Uh, I mean, we probably made, I don't know, a hundred thousand bucks or something. Um, and I was in high school. So like, that was great. Um, but it, it never grew past that. Lots of reasons, you know, I think focused on school. Um, I, I don't think it was a long-term success necessarily but it was a good learning experience. Um, met a lot of good people, um, met a friend of mine that I found another company with before I went to college. Um, and, you know, did a lot of things to learn on the internet, right? It's, it's very interesting how often on this show, there's some kind of sales element to the, to the background story of, of the entrepreneur and, and learning to sell and get over the, the, the awkwardness or block that might come with selling. And obviously in your case, um, you were speaking with these website owners, 
So hundred thousand. I mean, you you said that all casual. You're in high school, right? So so most people in high school might be saving up to get a six pack at the, back at the weekend or something. And you know you've you've got this this very early business um, or you've generated a hundred thousand dollars. But you've you've decided to finish high school and um, and you said there was another business with with someone that you'd met. What's the next sort of chapter in, in, in this early part of your journey that you can tell us about? So I think there's actually a really interesting decision point that happened before college, right? So, so I had a few companies, the, you know, the, the ads company, I did web design, I did a bunch of things that were kind of all small. Um, went and started a company called Return Path um, after meeting a good friend of mine, James in New York, who ran the square.com, which was a at the time, a social network for Ivy League schools, way before Facebook. So I think he was just a little bit too early um, on that. Um, started this company in the email management space, uh, raised capital. It, it done quite well and actually recently sold. So um, had a long lifespan for that company. But I had to come to a decision point of I was either going to go to college or kind of keep working on startups. And as an entrepreneur, I was much more on the keep working on startups thing. I don't need college. I'm going to skip it. Um, my mom was not too happy on that. Um, she's a lifelong educator, has run schools, um, done all sorts of things in education. Uh, I'm very glad she convinced me that my decision probably wasn't the best. And I went to Babson College. Um, and you know, the, the story continues from there. But it was, it was a hard decision. Right, like this was the boom of, you know, the early 2000 before crash, like 99. Um, do I stick this out in New York? And people around me are making millions of dollars building companies doing, I don't even know what, right? Like there was a lot of stuff happening. It, it was a hard decision. So you get a lot of entrepreneurs that say that, that you've dropped out of college. I mean, Zuckerberg being one of them, right? Um, but but or, or, or not attending college now you initially had that that feeling but went and and you said that you're you're very grateful for for your mum um you know pushing you in that direction what what skills as an entrepreneur did you get from college that you feel that some of those dropouts or some of the the, the not starting miss are missing out on yeah i think it's a great question um, and it's something that I've had a lot of conversation about, like, so Babson College is all business majors, right? So it's a very unique school and everyone's majoring in business and they have a very robust entrepreneurship program. It's the only school I wanted to go to. I, I, my mom told me I had to apply to others. I pulled every possible string to try to get to, to Babson because I was not on paper good enough, right? Like just period, my grades weren't good enough. Um, my grades were okay in high school. My test scores weren't good enough. Like I shouldn't have gone there. Um, but I went to every open house. I got a, a recommendation from a professor through a friend of a friend. Like I did everything again. Um, but what, what I learned there was less about skills and more about being able to mature in a safe environment over a four year period. I think that's what college is more useful for than anything is it is a relatively safe environment to have that period of time to mature in how you talk to people, relationships, interactions, you know, all of those things that become more and more important. Now, of course, at Babson, I learned, you know, how to understand and read a PL statement, which has been very useful, a very useful skill, right? Um, could I have learned that somewhere else? Absolutely, right? Um, so I, I can't point back to that as a valuable skill that college taught. But but that maturing part, I think, is is so important. It's it's not officially having a safety net and going out and 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 being independent and meeting other people of your own steam without the shadow of of the parents or, or or whatever or indeed the safety net of them. But also, it is in a safe environment, so you've got your training wheels on. You can't quite fall off the bike, but it feels like you can. And um, absolutely. And I I think I think um when when I sort of dug deep because I had a place at a university to to study psychology and I took a year out and, and reflected in that year and decided to to not take that that place and the only reason I was doing psychology is because I figured everything in the world is dealing with people at the moment so like that's something that you know psychology is going to help not knowing what, what I wanted to do but 
the the end um sort of observation was that it's it's about the independence or at least it was for me and 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 the moving away and 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 you know those experiences that come with that with that that space that i wanted rather than the education but i i imagine you 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 skipped over a really important thing which is in most of europe you have a gap year right in the united states we don't like typically right like it's Mm. becoming a little more common today and I think that that gap year sort of does a similar thing to the four years of college, but it's not as accepted as something to do here, right? So like, if that was, I think that's an opportunity to get some of that maturity during that gap year um, without having to go to college, right? Now, some people need longer, right? And I think college then provides that. I, I was one of those people, like I was very mature in certain areas and very immature in other areas, right? Um, but for sure, my kids, I want them to have a gap year between uh, high school and college. Like, I would promote that. It's just not common here. Interesting. Um, and, do you know, it's not actually that common here. Um, like, most people do go straight into it, but it's it's probably maybe 40%, 30 40%, if I, if, if I was Here it's like so, it's definitely... 5%, 1%, yeah. like some very small number. There you go. Um, okay, so, you, so you're, at, um, you're at this college, and you're surrounded by um business people right or budding budding business people it's a business college i'm sure the conversations are around that what what did college turn into for you after you'd graduated so i actually started grasshopper in college um so uh, met my co-founder at babson we weren't friends but we had mutual friends um i think an important point thinking about co-founders is you, you actually don't want them to be friends going into it um, we're actually very close now um, and have done everything since then together. So um, I think it's been a very good relationship, but I talk to a lot of people and recommend not being friends with your co-founder before going in. Um, but yeah, so my- Could you talk to more about that? Yeah. I've not, I've not heard that recommendation before. Yeah, so I, I think it's a really, it's really difficult, right? Having a, finding and building a relationship with a co-founder is very, very hard. Right. Um, I, I, I love it. Like I, it provides tremendous benefit to me personally, to the businesses. Like I wouldn't do it otherwise. Right. I can't, couldn't imagine, but it is, it, I think it's a more difficult relationship than a marriage. Right. Like you have to find complementary skills. You have to find, you know, the ability to challenge each other in a safe way, but also um, not hurt people's feelings. Like there's all sorts of things that go into it. Right. I think the pressure of being friends before going into that relationship makes all of that harder. And I have found very few examples where that works out. The more common is we are no longer business partners and we are no longer friends. Right. And I think now you, you've lost two things in that relationship, which is worse than just, I had a bad co-founder relationship. We're no longer co-founders. Right. Um, so um, that, that's one part of it. The other piece is typically friends, don't have complementary skills, they have similar skills, right? Because like we surround ourselves with people more like us than not like us, right? And if you really want to have the best co-founder relationship, it's about finding the person that's very much opposite of you, right? Um, now, obviously you align on core values and you know goals and things like that, but other things are very opposite. So I take this example, like my, my co-founder, Sinek, he cares a tremendous amount about brand and style and you know the look of things. I don't, right? So we're a great balance. I'm like, fuck that. Like, does it sell more or does it sell less? Like, I, I don't really care, but he's about like, what's the aesthetic and what's the long-term view of that? What's the brand, right? So like I buy shirts from JCPenney, a hundred of them at a time that are black. He probably has one shirt that costs more than all of my shirts together, right? But I would I wouldn't have been friends with someone so different from me if that makes sense. So how do you go about finding these kind of people? I I think it's hard. I think it's maybe that's one of the other things that college helped with is putting myself in an environment where other people had similar goals of starting, running, building businesses, and then having mutual friends that connected us. Right? Like they're like, well, hey, you guys are both thinking about similar stuff. You should connect. Right? I think that's the opportunity that college provides. And it doesn't have to be college, right? There's lots of other ways to do that, but it's that interaction with people outside of your network. 
So, I mean, making it actionable for the listeners as well, who didn't necessarily attend a business college and also yeah. um, may just be further along now in in their, their career or life, most likely are. How how do you go about i mean did you put the word out i'm thinking of starting a kind of business or were you very clear on what your skill set is and that's what the opposite of you looks like were you i mean you putting it to the universe to bring them to you i mean i mean that's part one like how do you go about that and then part two what's the dating period like you know like this 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 figuring out like do i even trust this person i mean they've got different skill sets to me but hopefully they've got the same values as you like, I mean, I, I, I get the opposites attracting you and you're likely to surround yourself by similar I'm down with that and agree with that. But like, how do you get there with 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 other things and, and get into a marriage, right? Or something harder than a marriage? Yeah, I, mean, I think to the first point, um, the way I go about it is putting out there what I want to do and what I accomplish. Like, if I tell more people about that, the likelihood they think of someone in their mind that may be a fit is higher, Right. And I talk to entrepreneurs all the time. They're like, yeah, but someone might steal my idea. I don't want to talk about it. I'm like, screw all of that. Like, tell everyone and everyone, like, here's what I'm doing, right? And yeah, you will find competitors, but they didn't become competitors because of you telling them. They were out there anyway, right? So like at Chargeify, when we started, recurring billing and building a software around this space was very nascent, right? However, within a six-month period, there were six or seven people because it made sense at the time, right? Like it was a challenge. There was more SaaS companies. Like, so lots of people thought of this, but I think one of the reasons we won is we went out there and just told everyone about it. So we were very early rather than waiting. Right. And that attracted a, a co-founder, attracted the first engineer, like all of those things happened because we just said, this is what we want to build. Right. And this is what we care about. So I think the first is putting it out there. Um, there's been so many other tactics I've heard, like there's like dating web, like founder dating websites and all this stuff. I can't say I've ever seen a success story from that, right? I think it's more about, you know, going outside your network, telling people I want this, and then it, and then it kind of happens, right? To the, to the so, second part. Go, oh, yeah. go ahead. Well, I was going to say, um, so the, 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 I guess it was going to go into the second part anyway, uh, you know, into that, the trust part, like you've, you've been referred by a friend of a, to a friend of a friend or, or, or something. And now like you're figuring out, Hey, are they a good fit? Do I trust them? Could I be married to them in business and so on? Yeah. So I think the first step is aligning around core values, right? And, and for us, like we didn't understand necessarily what that meant at the time. However, the thing that we aligned on together, both of us, was we wanna build something big, interesting, where we love being, right? Like we didn't even really talk about what we wanted to build, right? Like, but we knew that's what we wanted to do, right? Like it wasn't like build a lifestyle business, right? I think a lot of conflict comes when one founder is trying to build a lifestyle business and other one's trying to build a scalable company, right? Like those type of alignment issues I think are difficult and that's quite easy to talk through, right? Like what do we care about? Why? What are our timelines? Things like that, right? I, I think the, the second piece, which is much more difficult is like the uh, complementary skills, right? There's a give and take to figure out where I do things best or where you do things best. And you can't just discuss that. Sometimes it's just experience. You just need to do it. And that is that trust, which is, look, we're both driving towards the same thing. It's not about our feelings. It's about who can do this best right now. And that may change over time, right? Like today, David is the best when we started for building the software. I wasn't very good at it, but out of the two of us, I was the best, right? Um, over time, I never built anything again at the company. Right. Like I actually managed culture, core values um, and operations, uh, customer service, like those things changed over time. But we were very comfortable in saying, as it exists today, here's who, who's best at it and just going back and forth. Right. Um, but again, like all the conflicts I hear, like, oh, my co-founder doesn't work enough. I work too much. Like, yeah, that happens over time. It's an arc. Right. Like it, it changes. However, if we're still aligned on the same core thing, we want to build something great together. It doesn't really matter, right? So we're talking about Chargeify at the moment. 
And in the introduction, we teed up that you built and sold Chargeify twice. Could you tell us a story about that? Yeah. Um, so Chargeify, we actually built within Grasshopper. Uh, it was part of our Grasshopper Labs program. We bought, we, we incubated a number of companies within there, um, lost a tremendous amount of money. Um, Chargeify was the best out of that <laughs> and actually did very well for us from a monetary standpoint. Um, but uh, so we built it internally to solve our own problem, right? Which was we've built a, a billing system many times. The stuff on the market sucks. Uh, we have very complex recurring payments and plans and minutes and all of these things. So let's build it, right? Um, incubated that internally, rolled it out, um, got our first customers, um, got a small investment of $500,000 from Mark Cuban um, and continued to bootstrap it. Um, after selling Grasshopper, we retained Chargeify and some other assets. Um, decided um, it was the right time for us to focus on other things and sold it to a fund that I'm actually an LP in, um, Scaleworks. Um, I, I love those guys. They, they did a reasonable good job with the company and continued to grow it. Um, I stayed involved for a little while, so we retained quite a bit of equity in, in that transaction um, for two reasons. One, we had plenty of liquidity from selling Grasshopper. Um, our other co-founder there that um, we brought in, uh, didn't have liquidity. So we felt that it was the right thing to do to free up that liquidity for him, uh, sold it at a pretty, not low, but reasonable price. Um, let the company grow for a, a few more years, uh, and then sold it again to battery ventures most recently for way, way more than, than the first sale. And, um, I can say the second sale netted me personally far more than the first sale, even though I owned way, way less comparatively speaking, right? Um, but I think that's the, the beauty of retaining equity, even in things that you sell, right? And we can talk about what we're doing today, but we think about this a lot in how we structure deals in that giving someone true further upside um, in something they've built, right? So you built a brand to $50 million, you sell it to me, like, yeah, you should be able to get tremendous liquidity today, but giving you further true upside in a second sale should benefit everyone, right? Like you're engaged in the success and you built something that we are then going to continue to grow, right? So we try to structure things where in theory, a second sale could be as big or bigger than the first sale. I like that. And rather than just going, do you know what, you know, the founder person that's that's lived and breathed this for, for so many years like here's your here's your payday see you later you might do some time for six months 12 months or whatever sort of consulting but but ultimately there's an end path and it's a very different way to look at it and go look here's here's some money sure um but we want you to be a very very key part of this business and can continue to help us grow this so that the second payday is um, you know, you're incentivized for the second payday. How how do you determine a founder or, or even motivate a founder who often at the point that they're selling, they, they've got a the next thing in mind in mind, right? They've already, you know, in their head parted with this and ready for their next chapter. Yeah. So we actually don't want to keep founders around, right? Like we want to free them up to allow them to go work on their next adventure, right? Like we understand that entrepreneurship is a journey and that journey means different adventures over different time periods. Right. So for us, it's not about engagement. Like you have to work and help and like not an earnout, right? Like mm. I think earnouts are a tremendous cop out, right. And a way to lower valuations um, and keep people stuck in shit they don't want to do. Right. Mm. So we don't think about it that way. It's more like, look, we know that we're going to grow this. Um, you should get some of that upside later on absent of today, right? Like you should get paid today for what you, you're you selling to us, right? This is not an earnout. This is not stick around and do work or any of that crap, right? Um, so I think the entrepreneurs that are most interested in talking to us are exactly those that are ready for their next adventure, right? And they need to free up liquidity, but it doesn't have to be 100%. So and, and and do you in in that time do you, are you do you bring them in as consultants are you 
what's the benefit to you um, for that? The benefit to us is typically these founders care tremendously about the brand. Um, so I prefer to have them engaged. And I think it's the right thing to do in the right structure because we've been on the other side of that term sheet, right? Like we've been founders for decades, right? And seeing and experiencing that second sale and the benefit that it provided me from a monetary basis, I think is the right way to treat founders, right? Compared to, I just want to pull as much equity today. And, you know, I want to optimize for every single dollar. No, I want to optimize for everyone's success across the board. And then having you as a, you know, owner in the brand, you're going to be out there promoting it and making sure that we're doing the right things and call us out and say like, Hey, I don't agree with this. Like I can't make you change it necessarily, but I'm engaged. I built this brand. I know the customers and I can tell you that it's not right or this is right or whatever the things are. Right. And that type of engagement I think is tremendously valuable over like number of hours or, you know, consulting or making sure you're running the marketing team or whatever else. Right. Beautiful. Once again, a different way to look at things, and uh, yeah, tremendously, tremendously interesting. Um, I, I, interesting is a cop out word. I don't use that a lot, but I mean it is the actual definition rather than someone that doesn't know what to say. Right. Um, so you, I've had these. You've had a lot of success in the SaaS space, and uh, a serial success, but. Like in the introduction, we talked about you've made over a hundred angel investments, and the portfolio airbag is a lot of consumable e-commerce brands, DMVBs. At what point? I mean, so what kind of split are your angel investments like? What are you looking for there, and and why did you transition across to this industry? I mean. Uh, you know, I've I've built, scaled and exited SaaS um, companies, still have a, a software development team, and I've also done e-commerce. They're completely different, right? <laughs> they're, they're, they're completely different. And the, the, the modeling, the, the, the skill set, the team, the, the, the versioning control, the, the, the margins, everything is completely different. There's similarities, sure. Why, why the change? And where's your focus been with the with the hundred angel investments? Take it take it in uh, the order you prefer. Yeah, so I'll start with the angel investments. I'd say half were are software, um, so SaaS in some fashion. The other half are a combination of uh, e-commerce, you know, direct to consumer brands, marketplace, um, and then kind of other, right? Like just a mix of things, right? Um, so I had some early exposure to some of the um, food subscription boxes and such, right? So I think that was a, a way into that space and understanding it more. Um, my investment thesis for at least angel investments that I do today is very different than before. Like before I was doing more typical. Today, I only invest in companies doing more than a million dollars a year that are break even or profitable. Right. So that means by default, I've limited the number of investments I make a year. It's usually kind of two to three, maybe four at the most. Just inherently, that's a smaller pool. Right. Um, I still make a few angel investments a year outside of SaaS um, for brands I really love, like what they're doing, or I want to learn something new. Like I made an investment with Pathwater, you know, really love their combination of, you know, branding and consumer product with, you know, environment and recycling. Right. Like, how do you combine those things in a way that's not I don't love the give one you know, type model, like buy a pair of shoes and we give a pair of shoes like I, I want to see it more deeply embedded into the brand. I thought what Pathwater was doing interesting was interesting. So I got more engaged and invested. Right. Um, so that, that's kind of on the angel investment side. Your question of like, why switch industries? Um, I, I think one um, there's actually more similarities than people think. Right. And the, the areas that are different, I think, are actually keys to success. Right. So if you think about understanding software as a service and applying those things correctly to direct to consumer brands, it's not mo most people are not doing that. Right. Not just subscription side, but like thinking analytically about all their marketing channels. And like we think very deeply from a data perspective, from what we learned in SaaS, because that's expected that's not as expected in direct-to-consumer, right? So I think that's a, a benefit. Um, the, the more deeper reason of like why switch industries is 
after selling Grasshopper, I really had to think about like, what do I want to do and what makes me happy? And I want to do something big that has meaningful impact and change. Uh, and I, I believe that the way to do that is with physical product, right? Because that's what people understand and buy and can change habits with compared with like, if I said, everyone should eat this diet, here's an app to do it, right? I don't think you actually get the impact compared with providing the same, you know, a better version of something someone's eating, right? For example, in food, right? It doesn't have to be in food only, but like, I think that's how habits change. So when I thought about how do I do something big, interesting and impactful, it, it was much more in physical products, which then obviously goes to, you know, how do you do that? Is that direct to consumer or not or whatever? And we can have those discussions, but I, th I think that's what it came down to. Beautiful. I, and I like that. And, and I agree, I completely agree. And actually the, the one thing you do get good at with with SaaS is is your churn and your CAC and your and your growth rates and your run rates and and actually that there's a lot of similarities if your if your physical brand is is subscription based and you can you can jump into that and actually have an unbelievable um, advantage actually over a lot of e-commerce brands where subscription is a division uh, an afterthought maybe. Have you ever thought about fusing the two, like going Peloton, right? Is a is a physical physical brand with a with a you know SaaS product bolted into it? Yeah, yeah. I think it's actually a very interesting kind of evolution. And obviously, Peloton wasn't the first, but it's probably I think the most successful at this. Um, and I think it, it's very interesting, right? Because what they what they've really created is tremendous lock in, right? Buying a two thousand dollar bike almost guarantees you're going to spend $40 a month for some long period of time, <laughs> right? Like, unless you give away or sell the bike, like you just kind of keep paying. Um, so I think that that is very interesting. Um, how that applies to other, other e-commerce brands, I'm not as sure, but I think the inverse of that is like um, Quip toothbrushes, which are tremendously cheap, right? Like they're $5 every three months. Um, but I have one for my travel bag. I have one for my house. I have one for my kids, one for my, like, so now I have like 12 of them, right? So I'm getting all these subscriptions. So it actually adds up. Um, and I think they took the opposite is like, let's just make a really simple, cheap product that works well enough, right? Um, so I, I thought a lot about how do you apply those kind of techniques? I don't know the right answer yet, right? But I think that what lies in both of those is the reason it works is this is subscription side of it. I'm a big fan and there's, there's a few products I'm saying. I mean, first off with the with the Peloton um, example. So so apparently my um, free premium connectivity has just expired on my Tesla. Now, now I have to buy like the car and I have to pay like 10 pounds a month just for, for friggin' premium connectivity. And I'm like, damn Elon, you've got me with some sass. But um, I've, I've seen a, a slight, um, I've seen a few examples, not many actually, where there's, it's a physical product, but because of its connectivity, right? Because it's, it's in the internet of things or whatever it's called or whatever the latest iteration of it is, it can be remotely disabled. And so you you can use this product and uh, something like uh, the example I use is there's there's a headphone brand and actually I, I didn't get on with the headphones I didn't actually like the headphones but they're a really good concept that it's a it's a, an over-ear headphone that also goes into your ear and the idea is it tailors the sound to your unique hearing pattern so the sound sa sounds better and as a previous DJ and so on I was very excited by that um, but you could buy these what would be very very expensive headphones they made them accessible to the masses for like you know 30 bucks a month or even less i think it was like maybe 20 bucks a month um by with, with safe in the knowledge that they're they're subscribing to it and they can be remotely disabled so they're just like a useless paperweight if the person doesn't pay and then after two years or whatever when they've paid for it then they can just ship them out a new one and it's like rinse and repeat like I really like that kind of model where you can deactivate the product. You can make the product useless. Like if those, those, those toothbrush, I'm not familiar with the brand, but like imagine if they could just disable them <laughs> Stop remotely working. if you didn't pay your bills, you're like, Fuck, you know, kind of thing. Like it, it forces you to continue. I mean, is that sort of in and around the, some of the thoughts that you've had with this, this fusion? Yeah. So I, I actually think the opposite way about that, right. Which is, um, I think it's providing value first, right? So like Peloton, yeah, the bike, you know, kind of turns off if you don't have the subscription, 
But what they're what they're doing to incentivize the subscription is not that it's providing the greatest content, the best teachers, right, and engaging you that way. I think that's mm. that's the way for long term success, right? And I, I'd say similarly, like there's failures along that path, right? Like I don't know if you know the uh, smoothie brand, right? That you know had this device that made smoothies instantly for you, right? Um, it was a you know, big thing on the desktop. And when you actually looked at it, like the smoothie was already mixed in this container. You just put it in the thing and it just kind of plopped it out. Right. So when people found that out, they're like, screw this, this company sucks. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I, there's danger in that too. Right. Of like over kind of fancy stuff. Right. For no reason compared to just selling the person, the smoothie pack, they could have just poured into the you know drink. Right. But instead they had the $500 fancy machine on the counter. Yeah. Ah, oh, it's all very, very interesting. So you're a guy, you've already said that you, you put things out into the universe and, and you touched upon um, who you're looking to invest in um, or, or, or rather the, the, the size. I think you said at least a million dollars a year. Um, That's on the on, angel investment side. On, on, the, on the angel investment side. So is the angel investment side everything you're doing now or like, like, like what else are you doing now? Yeah, angel investment is probably... I don't know, a hundredth of my time, right? Like that's just as opportunities come, um, I evaluate both on, from a company perspective, but also from a learning perspective, because I'm optimizing for my learning and happiness at this point. Like, is this a person I want to be around? Is it an area I want to learn more about? Like those types of questions besides just the company. Um, what we do today though, is we buy e-commerce direct to consumer and consumer brands um, that are doing at least $5 million a year top line, more typically 10 million is where we really look um, and at least $1 million to the bottom line. Um, so in that range, um, no more than 50% on Amazon, right? So like we can discuss why I believe this to be important, but um, I, I think it's an important factor, um, especially for us as we evaluate brands and then some sort of um, repeat customer behavior. The name of the, our, our company is repeat capital. So it kind of makes sense, but um you know, that doesn't have to be just, you know, subscription or repeat rate on a per product basis, but like our customers coming back and buying from a brand, right? So like maybe you buy shirts and pants, you don't have to buy a hundred shirts, right? Um, but I want to know, is there a brand connection more than just a single product that I buy once, right? Um, and then, you know, lastly, you know, as we, as we look at a larger picture, um, you know, we really want the potential of omni-channel, meaning, like if you're not in retail wholesale, you know, today, um, we want there to be the potential because we could sell into that channel. So the brands that we like to buy and then build, you know, should have a, in the long run, a diverse channel mix of direct on their own website, Amazon for some portion, um, wholesale retail um, for, for the other piece, right? So all three kind of major channels. Beautiful. And I think this, this, um, potentially segues and potentially it's very, very similar, but in terms of advice to e-commerce brand owners out there and brand and people building a brand right now, now, um, those, those, and I think it is worth delving into why it shouldn't be over 50% Amazon as well, by the way, but touching on what you've just said then, which are the, the, what you're looking for, is there any additional things where, which you've, you've, feel maybe e-commerce brands aren't prioritizing high enough or if they're assessing an opportunity or thinking about their idea that they want to put you know five ten years of their life into they should be thinking about more you see what i'm getting at with this yeah. question like like what are your thoughts on that yeah so um th this is something that we actually talk about quite a lot with a lot of founders because one of the things that we try to do through our process is educate right like we're not going to buy every deal we look at of course um, so we always give back our analysis and the things are our thoughts, but also like our playbook is not complex, right? It's make sure that the marketing channels are optimized. You understand the data inside and out. Um, you understand marginal CPAs, not just blended CPAs. Um, you understand on a cohort basis, you know, all of the, the different types of buyers you have and what their lifetime values are on a cohorted basis, right? Like all of those things. So when we step back and look at it, I think the biggest opportunity that we see for e-commerce brand owners today is doing that work today, right? Like 
it makes it you know harder for us to buy things, right? Because if that work's done, there's not as much value we can drive. But that's not what I care about, right? Um, if you want to optimize today for building a, a brand, I would be focused on that, right? Like making my marketing channels an engine and not just paid, right? So like, how do I diversify my channels to be more than like everyone today is scrambling, like Facebook this, iOS that, right? Well, you should really have a diversified set of channels, each that you understand deeply about how much you can invest and what the marginal dollars are um, and what the gross margin is and the contribution margin to the business, right? And I think a lot of people get lost in this like discussion of attribution and all this bullshit. None of that really matters. If you're looking at this on a consistent basis the same way, you should see directionally what's happening and understand it. Um, so I think that's to me is the biggest opportunity. The second one I would say is what are the other major channels? So like if I'm selling direct, can I do better on Amazon and can I do, or can I do better in retail wholesale? Right, like building and starting that process is where a tremendous amount of value is generated for brands. So let's take the most simple example, which is I'm a direct brand today, right? My valuation is lower if I'm only direct than if I'm direct and wholesale retail, right? Because being in wholesale retail relationships for in food and Kroger or Whole Foods or whatever is more like an annuity than a direct sale, right? Because it's hard to get into, it's also harder to get out of, right? So that means like, even if Whole Foods says you're out, it takes them an order of magnitude months to a year for that to happen, right? So like the friction of, of kicking you out of that channel is much higher. And as you build that channel, it becomes more and more like an annuity, which means valuations go up. Beautiful. And then the, the Amazon question, 50%, why 50%? So I th obviously I think there's some fudge there, right? Like maybe it's 60, maybe it's 40, whatever, but like that's kind of where we look at. Um, but I think the, th the theory is the important piece, which is um, I think about even as a buyer myself on Amazon, like I buy things on Amazon, I don't buy from brands on Amazon. So going from Amazon to direct, I think is nearly impossible at this stage, right? Like. I think that there's a number of people who have raised billions of dollars. Um, some, some of them at your event, really nice guys. Like I really like them. I think they're doing really great things. I think it is a very hard challenge that unless you're willing to burn millions of dollars, you're not moving customers from Amazon to direct. However, you can do the opposite, which is I can increase spend on direct or even wholesale retail advertising and see the uplift on Amazon, right? Mm. The inverse is 100% not true. Spend more on Amazon, that's it. There is no uplift across other channels and you're not moving customer behavior, right? Um, so that's why when we look at Amazon at 50%, it should be a portion of the channel mix because as you're doing smart things across channels, the expectation is a certain group of people will always buy on Amazon, right? Now, I think the, the second step to Amazon is, have you optimized that channel to capture the people that are only on Amazon, that are not going to buy direct, right? That are looking for what we would call like intent-driven or sales-driven keywords, right? Like keto cookies, right? Like you can capture new customers from that on the platform, um, but you have to understand they're not leaving the platform. Yeah, the, and it's... I, I love that. And it, it, you put it so eloquently that, that there's people who will discover you on Amazon and actually it's very, very difficult to, to get them off Amazon. And often if you're getting them off Amazon, it might be that you're, you don't put your entire product range on Amazon and you get them hooked on your, your product and say, hey, we've got this other stuff, but it's only available here right now. And but yeah, they, they bought initially from Amazon because they trust Amazon. And, and like you said, they might well have just searched for keto cookies or something. And now they're looking at the, the, the highest recommended products and price combination and really going with that. And then, and they're a little bit fickle. And next time it might be the next one when they just sort of do, they probably search for collagen, uh, you know, keto cookie again and find a different keto cookie because yeah. there's, there's not that um brand loyalty but having it in the mix um is 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 obviously super valuable as is the the wholesale retail bit i, I look at it as like your 
the 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 buyers out there they have all the money but they don't necessarily have time an example i use for example was um we've now moved into our home like where we're going to be doing a ton of work and living here for 20 years right but this is the when we moved into here just a couple of months ago that's the second time i've moved this year because the timing of selling our old house and moving in wasn't quite there and we had to move into rented we moved into rented long story short the the garden the lawn was shitty right it was terrible and i'm a guy that i you know english man it's my, my house my castle and i like looking out on a green lawn right so i rolled up my sleeves and i got out there and i was like scarifying and sowing seed and stuff and i like this i, I take breaks from the computer to do physical labor because I, I enjoy that and come back more stimulated so i i do these kind of little pulses of of um whatever right it took six months or the best part of the six months we were there to turn this into like a mud pit into a lush green glorious lawn that the, the new people renting get to enjoy and we didn't and my and I use that as an example because it wouldn't have mattered if I just like you know threw millions at that lawn without short of returfing right I couldn't it takes time to get to that and so the, the wholesale relationships, if you buy a brand, it doesn't matter how much money you put into it, it's still going to take a bunch of time to get those wholesale uh, relationships, get that product into wholesale, get that initial traction, go through the buys and all of that. And so if you've done that time work, you've saved them, you've saved them time. It, it, it's not really about the money. It's they can't, no amount of money will really accelerate that to the point where it's tomorrow. You know, right, so I, mean, it's, I think too, like for brand owners, like, you can think similarly about the ability to build direct channels, right? Like if you've built a direct channel that's sizable today, that is very hard to replicate. So there's value there, right? Like I can't take an unlimited amount of money and build the same thing because Facebook ads are different, Instagram, all those things are different than three or four or five years ago, right? So like there's also a timing perspective that is just different today than it was before so things you've done, you've done in the past have value, right? Um, so I think that's very interesting for brand owners to understand. And I think where should you be doing that work today? I think that's on other channels, right? Like how do I get ahead on Amazon and build up review counts legitimately, not in crappy ways, right? Um, how do I build relationships, you know, in retail wholesale that take time, but pay off in the long run, right? Amazing. I feel like we could talk for a long time um, and I will dangle the option of a, of a part two potentially um, with, with the audience. We, we could we could discuss it. But what we do do on this show, do do, I said it, is we go into the rapid fire question round. I ask the questions. We, we change it up, right? It's normally a little bit earlier, but, uh, you know, apologies. We went off piece a little bit today in such an amazing, glorious way. I ask the questions quickly. You can answer them quickly or you can answer them at your own speed. Um, are you up for that? Let's go. Two thumbs up, up for that. Brilliant. All right. Question one. If you ever had to start again, how would you make your money? Yeah, th this is so hard. I think I'm unemployable um, and I've always <laughs> been unemployable. So I think I'd have to find some sort of hustle and I would find like, what is it could, that I could buy cheaply and sell fast at some sort of profit, right? Like th that to me would be my first go-to because I, I can't get a job. <laughs> <laughs> What's the most common or biggest mistake leaders make? Um, I, I really think it's not understanding the shifts of stage and time within a company, meaning like today, Martin, you may be great at our company for the stage we're at, but it doesn't mean that you were good for the previous stage or the next stage. And they want to retain people because they should or whatever, right? Like, I think it's really about understanding stage and understanding the right fit at the right time. Who is a great leader, whether alive or dead and why? This is a question I struggle with a lot. Like, I don't like pointing to leaders I don't know. Like, I've read every book about every leader and all the stuff. Um, I think it's the people around me that we've hired and, you know, lead far better than I do, right, within our companies. Um, and we can point to lots of them or lots of people over, over my career, but, like, they're not known people, right? Like, Elon Musk or whatever. Like, I don't really care about those people. Yeah, it's Steve in accounting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> How do you evaluate? Actually, we've done this one. So um, we've done the how do you evaluate a good business here and a good business partner. So it's all right. We're already ticking them off. What is one of your <laughs> proudest moments? My proudest moments? Um, I, I think it was actually 
uh, quite a few years ago at Grasshopper, we had a company barbecue. And it sounds kind of weird, but like stepping back at that time and saying like, oh my God, because we had family members and kids and all that, like stepping back and saying like, this is happening because of what we created. That was really one of my proudest moments. And like, of course, when my kids were born and like all those things you're supposed to say or whatever, yeah. but like seeing that we impacted hundreds of people, right? Mm -hmm. And they were all together because of something we were doing together. That was one of my proudest moments. Amazing. What's one interesting fact about you that not many people would know? Um, so I'm actually a certified yoga teacher trainer, uh, uh, yoga teacher. I did a 200 hour teacher training in the process of selling grasshopper, um, changed my life. Uh, I, I practiced six days a week. Um, but I, I did the training not to teach, but to deepen my learning. Um, but I am certified. Amazing. I love that. You, you could just start a YouTube channel, right? Yoga <laughs> yeah, <with exactly>. <laughs> we, we, could, we can do yoga and entrepreneurship on one channel. Yeah, exactly. Like downward dog project management tricks. I don't yeah. know, something, something like that. Um, what daily routines other than yoga do you have, whether it's morning or evening, that have helped make you successful? I love routines. I talk about it all the time. Um, I, I, it's one of the things I write about the most in my weekly newsletter. Um, uh, so outside of just yoga, like my routine is, is very much the same every morning. And even if like I work out every morning, but even if I can't because of a meeting or something like that, I still go to the gym, shower and get ready there. Like it's part of that routine. And I think sticking to that helps me have a lot of structure. And then my calendar is very, very structured after that for the rest of the day. So to me, that's all part of routine, but I thrive on routine. Love it. How can people get on your newsletter? Uh, DavidHauser.com. Um, about 15,000 subscribers now. I send it out once a week, kind of three things I'm reading, thinking about, you know, whatever. Um, but on a variety of topics. So entrepreneurship, finance, business, health, family. Um, I, I mean, kind of the things I'm thinking about, but very holistically. Beautiful. What book or books changed your mindset or life? I, I love reading and I, I should clarify more listening since I do everything on Audible. So uh, I am limited in some books are not available on Audible. Um, I'd go back to most recently, the, the books that I've enjoyed. Um, so I reread uh, Man's Search for Meaning, um, Victor Frankl, great, great book. Um, reread um, uh, 1984, um, really enjoyed that. Um, and what was, oh, I read the, the book about the 1918 flu, um, which I thought was very interesting. Um, a lot of similarities to, to what's happening to, today. And um, it was very well researched. It was long and dense. Um, so I think those are the most recent. Uh, but if, if I were to kind of pick like top books, um, Sapiens is definitely on that list. Um, and I'd say probably near after that, um, I love 12 Rules for Life um, by Jordan Peterson. Uh, did not like his second book. <laughs> um, I thought it was a just very contrived and he was trying too hard. But um, I, I also have a book list on my website as well that has every single book from a bunch of people all consolidated into recommendations to see what are the highest recommended books across a large group of, you know, kind of people, special people or whatever. Fantastic. I love that. We've, we've done something similar on the, on this show and, um, and collated. It's not actually public yet, but uh, um, I'll give you a sneak peek after, after the Perfect. show if you're interested. Um, what's the most exciting question you spend your time thinking about? Yeah, for, for me, it's really how do I optimize my happiness? Um, I've thought about this a lot, right? And I think that led me to obviously yoga and other things and, you know, improving my life. But um, I, I don't spend a lot of money. I have plenty of money for what I want to do, right? Like I, I, I live in the house I want to live in and we go on vacation when we want to go on vacation. And I have the same car I had 10 years ago. Like, like all that's kind of paid for quote unquote. Right. So to really what I think about is like, how do I optimize for happiness? Cause if I'm happy, that means the people around me are happy. My family's happy, my kids, all of those things. Um, and you know, what are the actions I can take to increase that? Could you give us a couple of examples of things you've discovered through your quest to optimize for happiness that you've, you've started doing as a result? 
Yeah. So I think the first, obviously, you know, yoga, self-care, you know, all of those things is one kind of bucket, right? Like I've just improved my everything from sleep to um, exercise. Right. And I think that that improved me as a person um, Two, writing the weekly newsletter um, actually has brought tremendous happiness to me. Right. And I don't really care if no one reads it, um, but it has made me a better person because I can share, right? Like the weekly habit of sharing my thoughts on things, right. has just made me better and made me happier. Um, cutting out all news. So I don't watch any news. I don't read any news, any of that. Like that has made me way happier, right? Just day to day, you know, sitting here talking to you, I can think and be engaged because all of that crap just doesn't matter, but it previously took, took thought time, right? Yeah. Um, removing Facebook, Instagram, and all social networks from my phone. Um, I, I did that probably four years ago. Um, just, I, I mean, the change is miraculous. Like you can't sit there and scroll on your phone, right? So you have to either engage with yourself in thought or with someone else, right? Um, and then the last thing I would say is for me, cutting out alcohol, um, going on four or five years now, uh, I'm just happier, um, not just the day after drinking, but happier in, in general. And I, I can't imagine adding it back. Amazing. Some, some incredible, incredible examples. Actually, what I noted there was a lot of it was, um, removing, right? It's, it's simplifying by, by removing. And a lot of people think, wait, what can I add to, to whatever? And actually, it seems like a lot of the things you've done is actually just like reducing stuff, yeah. right? Even yoga, it's like, it forces you to reduce the number of things you're doing in that time, right? Because it's quite a slow thing, you know, it's, um, it's yeah, it's so, so often um, the case. I love that. What unusual or underrated food or drink should more people try out? <laughs> um, this is hard because I think back to my routine. Um, I could eat the same thing every day. Um, uh, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I, for for me, I think it's it's less about unusual and more about finding the things that make you feel the best, right? And I think the inverse of that is removing the things that don't. So, like for me, I removed fried food 15 years ago because, like, I just came to a correlation, or maybe it's 20 years ago. Um, like every time I ate it, I felt like crap. Right. So like, I, I want to eat things that make me feel good, energized. Right. And, and want to progress and move forward, not bloated, tired, you know, sick. Right. Um, so I think it's about finding that compared to unusual or different. Hmm. It's unusual or different that, that actually you're, <laughs> it's, it's a little bit unusual that you're, you're, uh, you're not going for that short term, uh, win that short term, whatever with, with, with the fried food. And actually it's, it's the, the longer term and, and, and looking at it as, as fuel and, um, observing the, the mood. Do you know what, um, Myers Briggs you are? What, what, um, personality type you are? Uh, I have, I know disc way better. So I'm super high D um and like a, a low i and then my modified style like under pressure for disc is even higher d and like lower i so i become an asshole and run people over in essence um <laughs> under pressure um i i have to go back and look i don't remember the myers-briggs or the other one anagram or whatever like there's so many different ones but so many yeah uh yeah i mean disc is like just super high d like off the chart d nice and that brings us to the final question. We've brought the schedule right back in line here. It's perfect. Love it when that happens. Last question. What makes you happiest? This, this is going to be a hard one because I think it's an atypical answer. Like what makes me happiest is, is really working on and working on the things that I'm doing. Right? Like I've been very specific and careful in what I've decided to do. Um, and people are like, you don't need to work. Why are you working? I'm like, because it genuinely makes me happy and I love it every day, right? Like I am energized to go to yoga and get to the office, right? Um, and for a variety of reasons, but like that makes me happy, right? Where I think people want to hear answers like, oh, playing with my kids or whatever. Like, yeah, th that makes me happy, right? Like I love playing with my kids and being engaged. And I have the opportunity to do that because of the work I've done in life, right? But what gets me engaged every day is the stuff that I'm working on right now beautiful and um 
Yeah, I, I, I love that. There, there is definitely, a, I mean, there's a couple of questions and, 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 and so on that we've had. And there is the sort of, oh, you know, I must shout out to my wife. You know, I'm happiest when I'm with my wife or, or whatever. But it's okay. It's okay to have other things, right, which make you, which make you happy. And, uh, and frankly, the listeners want to hear those other things as well. And, and yeah, the, the art of moving forward and progressing on the things that you have chosen to throw yourself into and, and being in the moment with with those things or being in the moment with your children or being in the like whatever it, you know i i might be oversimplifying what you said or, or actually something completely different there but that's yeah I, you know i get it and it's far more far more than um you know the moment we were married or, or yeah or, or what have you oh david um that sadly brings us pretty much to the end of the show it's been tremendously fun uh, chatting with you and tremendously insightful i love that you're a, a zagger when the world is zigging and uh yeah i mean we, we definitely need more um more conversations um those listening i highly recommend you jump onto davidhauser.com and sign up to david's newsletter and consume anything else that is waiting for you on that website is there any asks or requests of the audience listening today? Yeah, so I would say if, if you're a brand owner that you know meets those kind of categories, a minimum of $5 million in sales and are interested in learning like what the value of the company is today or even what things you should be doing today, reach out to me. I'm happy to chat. Like I'm not looking to sell you on anything or buying it. Like I'll happily give that advice from an entrepreneur to an entrepreneur. Um, if there's an opportunity, I'm happy to work with someone. But you know, similarly, like we, we talk to a lot of people and the conversation is just like, Hey, here are the next five things I would do in the coming year or two years or whatever to generate more value. Right. And we're happy to have those conversations, um, for people that fit that category. And it's not that I don't want to talk to small companies. Right. But I think I can add the most value at a certain stage. So I want to be focused in my time. Amazing. So that's pretty much it for today. Once again, David, thank you so much for taking the time to to share your story, to share your origin story and to share the why behind the decisions you've made and um, give such actionable advice for the people listening today. It's been tremendously enjoyable from the bottom of my heart. I'm so grateful that you've uh, taken the time to be on the show. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey there, you incredibly good-looking human. Thanks so much for listening. If you had a good time today and would like more good times in the future, please hit that subscribe button and leave a heartwarming review. I read them all and it will go a long way to help others out there benefit from all the teachings of this show. And if you want to get in touch or otherwise learn more about me, head to martincook.co.uk or smarterdestiny.com. I really appreciate you. You're an incredible human. Until next time, keep crushing.